What we can learn is, of course, that an entrepreneur should think beyond the horizon, outside the box. And one of these boxes is in the example of this first dark entrepreneur is law. And typically we say, well, it's illegal, we can't do it. And what we can learn is that an entrepreneur looks beyond that and thinks and considers. And sometimes it might be very helpful to think just how to make things differently and be a non-conformist. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the new episode of Veo Executive Academy podcast, where we give you exclusive insights from some of the brightest leaders today who all have one thing in common. They are or were students of our MBA programs. I'm Chadomir Pushica, your host, and it is my task to ask the right questions so that you can learn more about the person, their industry, their mindset, and how they manage to bring positive change to businesses and their communities. Welcome, everybody. My guest today is Nikolaus Franke. Nikolaus Franke is the academic director of the Professional MBA Program in Entrepreneurship and Innovation. He founded the Institute for Entrepreneurship and Innovation in 2001 and has been serving as its director since then. Under his responsibility, the Institute has carried out over 600 projects with startups and innovative firms, spun out over 300 startups, earned research grants of more than 7 million euros, and published academic research that has been cited more than 10,000 times. Nikolaus is also the head of the VEU Entrepreneurship Center and the User Innovation Research Initiative at VEU Vienna. And today we're going to talk about the dark side of entrepreneurship. Hi, Nikolaus, and welcome to the show. Hi. So you recently published a series of articles about the dark side of entrepreneurship. Being a big fan of Star Wars and seeing the image of Darth Vader accompanying these articles, I immediately clicked, and I love them. So where did the idea for the articles come from? Well, actually, there were several several sources. One was a doctoral student of mine that is working at the Institute who, well, caught an interest for, let's say, these non-obvious perspectives on how to look on a very positive phenomenon. And yes, it exists. We agreed on that quickly. And um, we can also learn from that. And the other one was Paul Kospa from the Executive Academy, who also, in parallel, and without knowing that there's already some thinking going on, had a kind of an interest in that topic. So we agreed to study that a bit and develop some thoughts on this, let's say, off-topic, typically off-topic topic. So what is dark entrepreneurship? What do we mean by that? Well, dark means that the entrepreneurial phenomenon is either not legal or is not legitimate or both. So what we typically look at, if we look at the startups, we think of businesses that actually help the society getting better, innovations being introduced in the market that make our life easier, safer, longer, more entertaining, and so on and so forth. But also beyond this bright side, there are opportunities and there are people who spot these opportunities and bring them to life in the either illegal area or in the illegitimate area. So this is the big dark side and dark side also because it's less discussed, it's less appreciated and also not taken up as a learning opportunity for the bright side. Mm -hmm. 
Shall we go into the first category of dark sure. entrepreneurs, the ones you call informal entrepreneurs, illegal but legitimate? Can you tell us something more about that? Well, the persona for that kind of activity is obviously Robin Hood. So he was an outlaw. So he was seen as being against the law. But on the other hand, major parts of society, the underprivileged, the not rich and the exploited persons, sense that this is right, what this guy does. So in a way, major parts of society thought it's legitimate, but concerning the existing law, it was illegal. So that is, let's say, the persona. And it marks something that is very typical also in our times and also in our society, because not all laws and documents and things that exist that regulate how we have to behave actually make sense. Some are outdated, some made a lot of sense, but no longer do so. So there's a big area that needs to be challenged. And this is just the role of these illegitimate, wrong, correct me, legitimate entrepreneurs that are illegal. And can you give us some example of who these persons are today? What companies are behaving like Robin Hoods in today's society? Well, one example might be coming from the from the shared economy. So Uber, for example, a transportation company was seen or was treated as illegal or at least at the gray area of the law. But it helped cracking many things that did not work in many parts of the world in the taxi industry. So to give a number, in New York, a taxi license cost up to $1 million. And these high costs weren't to the benefit of the passengers, obviously. So they reduced the possibility to enter that market. So it was just an entry barrier going at the expense of profit for the driver or the company, going at the expense of the quality of the car. Whoever uh, rode in a cab in, in New York knows how old these cars were. So it, the business just didn't run well. And Uber positioned itself as a tech company. So trying to evade all these many, many regulations, including these license things, well, obviously offered a very good product to a much lower price to the benefit of, let's say, many people at least. So mm -hmm. in a way, we can say it forced the legal side to change or adapt the laws somehow. And the result is um, just a better service. And what are the learnings that we can get from these companies that operate like that? What are the main characteristics, let's say, of the entrepreneurs in this operating in this area? Well, what we can learn is, of course, that an entrepreneur should think beyond the horizon, outside the box. And one of these boxes is in the example of this first dark entrepreneur is law and Typically, we say, well, it's illegal, we can't do it. And what we can learn is that an entrepreneur looks beyond that and thinks and considers. And sometimes it might be 
very helpful to think just how to make things differently and be a non-conformist. So that is something one can learn because these people obviously are quite non-conformists. Another thing is also to question rules. And that's what they do. They say, well, it's, it's illegal, but doesn't it make sense anyway? Can't we justify that also for ourselves? And they think, yes, and this is an attitude that makes a lot of sense, that um, looking at the objective, what do I want to achieve, is the primary question. And then also, of course, what are the rules? But pragmatism first, does it make sense? Is anyone benefiting from that? And not what are the rules, what am I allowed to do? So a little bit of that helps any entrepreneur. And in a different direction, obviously, we can also learn how important it is to have some kind of an ethical orientation. So obviously, it's a fine line. What is legitimate and what is not? It's delicate, and it can also, can also be used as an excuse. And that is not what I'm saying here. This is not what we should take as an, a role model, the, the, the illegal aspect. It's just that law should not stop us from making things that are right because also the law can be outdated or not applying to that very situation. So we have responsibility. But for that, obviously, we need capabilities and, and education in making ethical judgments, because not harming people is a very important criterion. Mm -hmm. And that's not what I advocate here, to harm anyone. Yes, but in any case, what you actually started with this conversation is talking about the big elephant in the room, because these entrepreneurs, the dark entrepreneurs with different shades of dark, actually contribute a lot to the economy and we can't ignore them. And I think I read it in your article that it's in some of the most developed countries, I think 17% of the revenue is, I think, generated by these entrepreneurs. And in some developed countries, up to 40% comes from these dark, dark entrepreneurs. That's right. Yes. That's right. So it's just an important part of, of our society and of our economy. So we, we shouldn't ignore that. That's, that's mm -hmm. for sure. And also, historically, big effects resulted from such entrepreneurial behaviors. I have this, this example from China in the 50s. In one area, they, they had this, this rule of this collective farming approach. And a group of farmers challenged that. They said, we see an opportunity. If we treat this secretly and just between us as, as private land, We can circumvent these rules and um, we have a much bigger incentive to care for the land. And this thought was actually true. So within a very short time, they had a crop of 500% of what was there before. So the result was enormous value. The, the Chinese government observed that and when they did this reform on, on farming, They took that into account that obviously private possessions and private property is important. So it influenced the rules, the, the update, the reform of the rules, the, the law, with the result that probably millions of lives were saved. So yes, it is very important to have a look at this side, how it works, how it is done, and what we can learn from that. That is an incredible story. <laughs> 
And now going into the second category, the controversial entrepreneurs. Can you tell us more about these people and their businesses which are legal but illegitimate? Yeah. In a way, they're just the opposite of this first category. We are talking here about people who fully operate within what is allowed legally. But we, or major parts of the society, have the, the feeling that this is somehow, well, it shouldn't be done. It smells. It is something you wouldn't want your daughter to date with a guy in that operating in that business. So as an example, many people have this notion when it comes to gambling. Yeah. So gambling is an, as an activity is as old as mankind. So in, at all times, people were fascinated by the idea that you don't know what the outcome will be and then you just try and the thrill and, and the suspense and what is going to happen. So that has an effect. We are entertained by that. And if there is a demand, there's also always supply. But many people, and for good reasons, think that this is a slippery slope, or can be a slippery slope, that, that gambling easily leads to, I don't know, corruption, being addict, organized crime maybe. So it's delicate, and for that reason, or difficult, and for that reason, many people think, well, it's not okay to work in such a company. It's not okay to start something in that area because of these implications, these consequences that are possible and that shouldn't be ignored, also for good reasons. So and the same holds true for the tobacco industry or other harmful food where you think, well, people want that and someone will supply that. But, ah, and it's also legal, of course, but... We don't have a good feeling with that. Or all these red light things, so the porn industry, sexually oriented services, many of them are legal. But we think, well, we're skeptical. We think it's against our moral thinking, or at least large parts of society do think so. I should maybe should not talk about myself. It's just a fact that many people think so. Mm -hmm. And we know, everybody knows uh, about gambling and the big companies behind that. But can you also mention some other companies or some names or entrepreneurs who really succeeded, who are very probably famous, who broke some of their, let's say, social taboos yeah. and established big companies? Yeah, good examples are in the industry I mentioned last, this this red light porn, however you want to, to term that industry. Hugh Hefner was the, the founder of Playboy, was such a person here in the in the 50s. This was an immense taboo, nude people and, and, and all that. And he overcame that resistance, that fierce resistance. And Or Larry Flint from Hustler magazine, which is more extreme than Playboy. Or in Germany, it was Beate Use. And they started something at a time where the society was totally against, let's say, the more liberal perspective we today have on sex and on these things. So what they did was not only dare to enter that, they also worked on overcoming this collective 
perspective. So they raised a lot of scandals and um, set provocations and continued working. And um, for sure, they also have contributed to all the sexual revolution in the 60s and, and, and 70s that from today's perspective are difficult to understand how our parents or grandparents lived and how tight and narrow and strict societies at that time had been. Yes, so, really, really difficult to, to imagine from our perspective. And it's, it wasn't so many years ago when you, when you think about it, but it was a very different world back then. Well, what are some of the traits that these people have that normal entrepreneurs don't have? Well, of course, they must be willing to accept resistance. They must be able to be so robust that they can stand this, yeah, this resistance running against the wind and so if you want. So if you do something that most people find strange or illegitimate, you must be quite convinced of what you do and that things might change or that you don't care for that. But most people like to get recognition and like to be liked. So we hear, we can learn from these people that the belief in one's idea and in what one does and to acknowledge resistance, but in a, in a very factual way, kind of sorting, what can I learn from these resisting people? Is there something that actually I should take into account? Or is it just something, this resistance to change, the resistance to the new, that practically happens with every innovation? So it's necessary that we have entrepreneurs who can live with this resistance because it's inevitable. Any innovation ever that was a bit more radical or at least not totally non-radical, very incremental innovations may be thinkable that didn't earn resistance. All the other innovations were fiercely fought. So people... People resisted. If we think about, I don't know, trains. Uh, today, a train. What's new about a train? What's controversial or extreme about having trains that transport people? If you read about the history of innovation, you will see that there was huge protest. People, people thought, well, if we built railway tracks and have trains on them, well, the passengers will die for sure but also the environment, the nature, the trees, and, and all people watching these incredibly fast objects running around the landscape, they will die too or, or have enormous diseases resulting from that. So we can hardly imagine how fierce this resistance was. So what we need with any innovation is people who can stand that. Innovations are like little children, they need to be protected by their parents. In the beginning, an idea is very weak, and so are innovations. So we need entrepreneurs who take care of them, and we can learn from the extreme case of these controversial entrepreneurs how a personality can look like that manages that. That's awesome. And uh, now speaking about trains, I think the same thing happened with cars. And sure. It, it wasn't... 
unimaginable, I think, at one point. So, well, just think about mobile phones. That's not so long ago, but you might remember when they came up, let's say 25 years ago, end of mid of 90s, everyone was ready to say, well, who needs that? Who is such an show off to demonstrate uh, superiority and elitism to use a phone. Can't these guys have a phone call at home or in their office? So there was strong resistance. The object was treated as something totally awful and illegitimate. I remember so well, so <laughs> well those times. And I, and I know that back in the day, I, I remember I bought my first mobile phone in 1998. And at the time in Serbia, it was like a new thing. And if you would get on a public transportation and your phone would ring, a thing which rarely happened because, you know, it was very expensive, people would look at you and say, what are you doing on a bus if you have a phone? Like, it was like socially unacceptable. So it was crazy. It was crazy times and not so long ago, really. Yeah. So basically everything, every more radical new thing first gets skepticism, resistance, well, or is, is people try to really fight that. So that we can learn from these controversial entrepreneurs, well, how to stand that, this resistance, because it's also a psychological thing. You're alone mm -hmm. in the beginning. Yeah, it takes strong character. Finally, the darkest of all, illegal and illegitimate businesses. Can you tell us something about that? That's an interesting one. We're talking about straight crime here, right? Right, straight crime. And that was something that always fascinated people, again, at all times. But here we have no, let's say, no society benefits from crime, yeah? to make that clear initially. It is something that is, is forbidden for very good reasons and that we cannot take as in any sense as something positive. So, But what we can learn from that is what are these guys doing in order to achieve their objectives? And is there something that parallels in the bright side? And actually there are a few principles of entrepreneurship that are pretty well illustrated by these illegal criminal entrepreneurs. Could you tell us more about that? Like, give us an example of what that could be? Well, the obvious first one is the, the, the surprise element. That's something that is very important in illegal and criminal things. And obviously also for the bright side, for entrepreneurs. A nice case is, well, one of these early plane kidnapping activities. They were, at that time, this was um, relatively typical. And two guys had, when they were on the flight and um, had put a pistol at the head of the pilot, had the sudden idea of threatening to fly the plane into a nuclear power plant, Oak Ridge in the U.S., so that was an innovation in a way, this threat. Nobody ever had this idea. And they totally shocked not only the pilot, but also 
the, the organizations that run the nuclear power plant, politics, police, everyone, they were totally shocked. They wouldn't know what to do with that. They had no idea of what would happen if that plane crushes into that nuclear power plant. So surprising is a good thing for achieving, uh, achieving a goal. In that case, it ended that they earned $2 million and made their way to Cuba. And in the case of entrepreneurs, in the bright side, surprising the market with something that really is out of the box very often can be the basis for, for a fundamental and revolutionary innovation success. So that is something that is in parallel and it's nicely illustrated by 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 crime by criminals mm -hmm. and also there are some businesses and i think you mentioned a very famous one the so-called ponzi scheme and the, the guy named ponzi the pyramid schemes who were practically legitimate businesses or they were luring people into um into this really criminal activity practically where he was making a lot of money and making a lot of people <laughs> desperate so can you tell us more about that and the similar cases that are repeated in well, history yeah first of all i wouldn't say that they are legitimate and clearly they are also acting against the law in the end but yes it's very fascinating ponzi was a immigrant and, and he had this idea in the 20s of the 19th century in the u.s to offer 50% return, 50% interest within 45 days for everyone who gave him money. And at that time, like today, um, people could only dream of such an interest rate. And he, he dressed it up with a story about coupons and, and, and things like that. So it, it, it sounded pretty plausible for the first people and they were hesitant a bit but then the first tried it out and actually he he paid them and as we all know for a while such ponzi schemes are possible and then mathematically it's inevitable that the whole system crashes because it comes to an end yeah he paid the the investors with the additional money he got from later investors and obviously that cannot be sustained very long And what can be learned is, is he managed to fake something that was not yet there. So fake it till you make it is also a slogan very popular among entrepreneurs because typically an entrepreneur, well, has an idea and truly believes in that idea, but not yet has anything. So he depends or she depends on getting the resources that are necessary for bringing this to life. So in a way, it's a circle, a vicious circle he has to break, or she, actually. So convincing others that this is going to fly is an element, an important element of an entrepreneur, attracting funds, attracting investors, attracting people working with him or her, so team members, all that, not only to believe in yourself, You also have to be credible to others, impress them, create trust. So these are all good things, principally, if not abused by criminal persons. But we can learn from criminals how they do that, what, what techniques they use, 
how they actually do that, how they manage that. So that is very, very interesting because the, the entrepreneur is definitely in the same position. Yeah, when speaking about this scheme, what comes to mind is how people really attempted to believe some things that really at a later point they would might even ask themselves, how, how did we even believe this? But they do, and it's been repeating over and over. And the latest trend, you're definitely, I think, you know about this, is the cryptocurrencies and all the hype about them and the people who set up companies where there is no cryptocurrency behind but are practically a Ponzi scheme. And they continue buying because there is this wave of people getting rich and it's just amazing how these things work it's also happening in in, in stock markets regularly so also without um, crypto i mean yes um, that we have these bubbles where where people observe oh there's something going on immense wealth is being created i'm not part of that all these people cannot be wrong now i know a couple of them who succeeded i want to be part of that too may it sound as as implausible as it does but I will be part of that. And we know that, for example, Bernie Madoff, the, the famous investor, managed to, to create an immense um, damage. So many more times than, than Ponzi. So I think it was some $65 billion. So what a damage. Looking back, it's hard to believe that people believed him. So it was so implausible. Mm -hmm. But when it ran, well, obviously he managed to convince people. Now, this was really enlightening, but let's leave those dark entrepreneurs a little bit to their darkness and move into the lighter stuff and uh, speak about the, the Institute, the Entrepreneurship and Innovation Institute. Can you tell us something about their work, what they do, how they can help entrepreneurs and also touch upon the competition, which is organized, if I'm not mistaken, twice a year, right? Which mm -hmm. is the famous ENI touchdown. Yeah. So maybe what I what I focus on is what is most interesting for the public or for, for managers, firms, startups, our teaching approach. I believe that teaching involves and learning involves trying out, so applying. So what we don't do is just teaching our students in a theoretical way and say, well, after a few years later, you will realize how beneficial this all was for your business. Rather, we think things should be integrated into the studies, meaning that our students get both. They get the theories, the methods, all, these, all this knowledge, this abstract knowledge, and at the same time, they also get the, the opportunity to apply that in real projects where they can try out how does this method, for example, work and what is side effects and how can I get the data from it and so on. And we do this by applied projects, by our project courses, where small student teams are assigned to an external of the institute, can be a startup, can be a small, medium-sized company, it can also be a multinational, or it can be a nonprofit organization, whatever it is. And these stakeholders, these externals, 
they have an innovation-related problem, a real problem. So something where they sense, well, we need to do something about that. We didn't have the time, or maybe we are just thinking inside the box. And maybe it would be helpful to have a bunch of um, out-of-the-box entrepreneurship students dealing with that. So, and then during the semester, our student team is assigned, works together on solving this real problem. And at the end of the semester, they have a solution. They're not working alone. We, we coach them and we supervise them as, as academics. And we also have a network of, of lecturers and, and people from, from practice, be it venture capitalists, be it consultants, be it attorneys, whatever the, the project is. And that, that help the students be efficient and, and get the input necessary for solving the very problem. And at the end of the semester, they provide a solution for this, this partner. And the result typically is that the partner is quite happy and, and usually surprised by the quality and the innovativeness of the solution. Also by the questions the student asks. Typically, these are no stupid questions. These are questions that are a little bit outside the box, as I said. And for students, obviously, it is fantastic because it's highly motivating to see how things work. Also, to see what they can achieve within short time, kind of the recognition, of course. And for both sides, it's also a network opportunity. So these are interesting students, highly qualified, and also interesting firms. And what we see is that pretty often after these projects, relationship continues. And um, as we know, business is about relationships to a large degree. This is kind of a win-win situation for both students and company partners and also for us. So win-win-win in a way. And on the ENI Touchdown, this is the event where our students present in pitches what they have achieved during the semester. So we are running a lot of many projects and we have pitches because otherwise it's not possible. It's just too much. And students there showcase their entrepreneurial capabilities. And it's just surprising how every semester they, they come up with highly sophisticated, convincing, innovative solutions to all these different problems. And I forgot to mention that. The problems are very different. They have as a common denominator, they have that they're related to innovation, meaning there's not a standard scheme or a standard answer. It's not routine. It's new. There's no solution that is, that is obvious. It has to be found. And also sometimes the problem itself has to be reformulated. And um, in this semester, if I may announce that it's on in June 15. The address is um, visible on our website, eni.org or at BU website, and you can find the, the Institute's website quickly at six o'clock. And it will be in Wirtschaftskammer Österreich in Julius Rabsaal, Wiedner Hauptstraße, 63. Thank you for this. And how many companies, how many startups participate? How many groups? Do you have any rough idea at least? Well, it, it varies from semester to semester. We have something like 25 to, to 40. Um, so actually, it's a big number. 
And we also reorganized this in a way that, well, the, the, the thrill of the entrepreneurial situation is a little bit transported. So we make it as a battle. So it will be an innovative format this semester too. So we're trying, experimenting with something new. And so it will be entertaining just from that perspective. But the more important aspect is, of course, that you can see, well, really cool projects, really cool students showcasing their talent. And who can apply for this? You mentioned startups, multinationals, non-governmental organizations, maybe non-for-profits. But how can they uh, learn about you know, the process of applying and what are the requirements normally? Well, the requirements is just that we need to be convinced that this is an interesting case for our students, that they can contribute something, they can apply their, their knowledge. So that, that is a pretty general requirement, of course, that's our focus. And the process of um, how to apply for, for that is on our website. It's described also in a video that illustrates both the process and also the, the requirements and what, they, what companies or organizations can expect and what is expected from them, of course. So that's on our website, should be easily found. If someone of the listeners doesn't find it, feel free to send me a mail. I will point him or her to the right address. We will actually link to the show notes, all the links that you mentioned. So, And one more thing that I would like to ask you is that out of all those projects, do you keep track of the companies, startups who actually went on to deliver the, the ideas presented and the students came up with and that turned into successful companies do you have any tracking of that well i must admit not in a in a systematic way we should do that because it's so interesting and there's so much that is going on but given the scarcity of resources we rather opt for making more projects than for following up so it's a hard trade-off i must say so what we know is just let's say, informally and in an unsystematic way that there are actually pretty many projects that, that live and students that, that catch fire from, from this experience and um, that we have a big effect. So we made an estimation or a calculation some years ago and it was already hundreds of startups resulting from, from this kind of activity and also from our alumni who, who leave the institute equipped with with really good knowledge about how to start something, how to organize this process, how to secure investments, how to develop a marketing strategy and all that. And many of them hold this idea of when I have the opportunity, when there's something I see, then I will jump on that. And then comes the moment they're prepared. So this in total results in, in many hundred um, startups coming from our students. They're just fantastic. That's great. And thank you and see you in Vienna at the touchdown. So you said it's the 15th of June and see you then there. Thank you. Hello again. Thank you for listening to this episode of VEU Executive Academy podcast, Know How to Inspire. Now, one more thing before you go. Please subscribe to our channel on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes, or check out our website at www.executiveacademy.at forward slash podcast. That is 
executiveacademy.at forward slash podcast. Last but not least, spread the word, because the more you share knowledge, the more inspiring it gets.